Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jim Blauk, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing the boundary waters. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Jim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website within 24 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Jim Blauk about fly fishing the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. Our approach is simple, education. Fly Fusion is unique when it comes to fly fishing magazines. It is one of only a few magazines in North America that focuses on instruction and education. In Fly Fusion, we've covered subjects like short line nymphing, tactics for tough days, still water fly patterns, dry fly fishing for fussy trout, and a host of other interesting and educational topics. Visit our website today at www.flyfusionmag.com. That's flyfusionmag.com mag.com and start your subscription to fly fusion today so that you can learn all you need to know about fly fishing before we introduce jim we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight for our drawing tonight we're going to be giving away a three-year membership to the federation of fly fishers a one-year subscription to fly fusion magazine you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing now if you haven't registered yet for the drawing just go to our homepage and ask about flyfishing.com and Look for the link under Jim's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on the link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners of the drawing at the end of the show. We will also be giving away a dozen of Jim's top smallmouth bass flies, which are, of course, guaranteed to catch tons of fish in the boundary waters. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question's going to be about something that uh, Jim and I talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and your location using the same text box on our homepage that you use to send in questions during the show. So listen closely and use your best typing skills. Be quick about it, and you might win those dozen flies from Jim Blauk. Tonight, our guest is Jim Blauk. Jim, a Pennsylvania native, diligently hooked and rehooked river smallmouth bass and anything else that wanted to bend his pole. The dedication and perseverance displayed there surfaced later in the classroom. He has degrees in wildlife management, chemistry, environmental studies, as well as a graduate research in environmental biology. Jim is a Federation of Fly Fishers certified casting instructor and affiliated with numerous company pro staff programs, including St. Croix Rods. Jim's two passions of fishing and exploration eventually led him to Ely, Minnesota, at the edge of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Jim is the owner-operator of Moose Track Adventures Resort, Outfitters, and Guide Service, and he is a valuable source of information on the flora and fauna, natural history, and ecosystem ecology of northern Minnesota. His fabulous fishing and outdoor experiences, wilderness navigation abilities, enjoyable campfire stories, and taste bud tantalizing meals are all things his clients enjoy. Jim loves guiding in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, 
which is not the end of the world, but it makes for an end-of-the-world experience at the edge of the civilized world. Jim, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thank you very much, Roger. It's great well, to be here. Good. I, I'm glad you're uh, not frozen to death up there, but I, I, you're used to that weather, aren't you? Well, it's getting kind of close, you know. We're, uh, um, we're supposed to hit 20 below again tonight, but uh, that's okay. Oh, man. <laughs> Soft water is just around the corner. Yeah, well, I, I, like I told you in a prior, yeah, salt water is just around the corner. Yeah, that's that's something to look forward to, I guess. Exactly. Well, um, warm fires and not in, in, a, in a warm family, and you're all set up there, I think. So. Well, th- thank you, thank you again for having me, and I look forward to the interview. Well, we've we've got lots of things to cover tonight, and got a ton of questions from our, our listeners again, and. Feel free to, to ask more during the show, folks, like we, we said. Uh, fill in that box, and we'll, we'll see what we can do with them. Now, first, let's start, because we do uh, have people listening from all around the world, Jim. So can you give people an idea of where you are and where the, the wilderness area is uh, sure. in, in relationship to the rest of the world? <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're located in Ely, Minnesota, which is about 270 miles north of Minneapolis. Now, uh, when, when people refer to the Boundary Waters, technically the Boundary Waters is that area that covers from basically International Falls all the way to the Pigeon River, uh, which is right around the, uh, um, the Thunder Bay and Minnesota border there. But now if you're refer, just referring to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, that's a 1.5 million acre federally protected uh, wilderness area where restrictions have been placed on any development, any motorized uh, traffic. Now, there are certain lakes in the Boundary Waters wilderness area that you can have uh, a 25-horsepower limit motor on, but it's less than 1% of the entire wilderness area. Mm. So it, it, yeah. so it encompasses basically from Crane Lake of Minnesota all the way to the border of it, it's called the Pigeon River area, and combined with that of the Quetico Provincial Park, which is the Canadian side of the wilderness area, you have over 2.2 million acres of canoe area and federally protected waters that are are pristine. Well, describe describe what the those waters are and, and how they're interconnected and, and the lay of the land up there as well. Because sure. if you haven't been there, you don't really understand how much, how many pieces of water there are up there. You know, uh, literally there are thousands of lakes and rivers that interconnect. Hundreds of years ago, it was inhabited by the Native Americans, mostly the Ojibwe culture, which then evolved into the, the Voyageurs Highway, where they would transport furs across northern Minnesota to the Great Lakes and then to the East Coast and then handling that entire fur trade route. It's the lower section of what is the Canadian Shield Lake, so it's the southern end of the, of the, of the northern Boreal Forest. So we have the Canadian Shield Lakes, which provides excellent fishing habitat for fish ranging from walleyes, northern pike, and, of course, smallmouth bass and muskies. Okay, now I, I did, uh, I, I got a question in here from Paul in Roanoke, uh, Virginia, asking about the other types of species that are available. Mm-hmm. The guy's falling. So he said pike, muskie. 
Others have written in and said they've caught walleye up in that area. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. uh, this area, the Canadian Shield Lakes are notorious for their for walleye fishing. Okay. That's what the majority of people that, when they think of northern Minnesota, it's walleye fishing. It's it's uh, dragging a jig and a minnow across the lake. I call it dragging dead meat across the bottom. But, uh, <laughs> and... Uh, so when I uh, uh, first came to this area, being a river smallmouth bass fisherman from the uh, East Coast, I was amazed at the lack of fly fishing in northern Minnesota. So that's what enticed me to to say, hey, you know, what what what's around here that we can catch? I, sh- I should also mention that we also have largemouth bass, which is oh. native, to, which is also native. So lo and behold, you know, I found that this this smallmouth bass uh, fishery up here was absolutely, in my opinion, world-class smallmouth bass fishing. So I started doing guided trips for smallmouth bass fishing, and I incorporated my love for fly fishing into my business. And lo and behold, it starts to build, and more and more and more people come up here because they they know that it is an excellent place to catch smallmouth bass on a fly rod. Now... With all the lakes and the thousands of lakes that exist up there, are they are, are lakes particular to a you know a, a particular species, um, or are they all yes and no all over? Okay. yes and no there there are particular lakes that are better for certain species of fish such as let's say lake trout fishing that requires a, a very oligotrophic lake very deep and clear basically low nutrients, but it, it holds that water temperature year-round to hold lake trout. Typically, those lakes have the multi-species of ranging from lake trout all the way to the smallmouth bass. Now, I do have lakes uh, in my little, my, in my back pocket, I call, that only hold smallmouth bass and northern pike, where you're not going to catch any walleyes. So it's, there's so much diversity up here that whatever you're seeking, sure, you can go into, I would say 90% of the lakes hold all of the species of fish except, you know, except for lake trout. Okay, okay. We have an interesting question here from Dan Crowthers in North Dakota. He's kind of in between you and and us out here in the west. And uh, his question is, for some of us, the time available for fishing is limited. Other than a different experience, why do you believe a person should go to the uh, Boundary Waters Canoe Area instead of stream trout fishing in the Mountain West states? Well, I think um, if you're looking for a different experience, you know, it, it, there's nothing better than standing along the Yellowstone River or the Gallatin and, and, you know, nymph fishing and catching some beautiful cutthroat or trout. But this is an area that is still pristine. It hasn't been really changed for the last 200 years. It's been protected. It does require... Uh, in certain areas, depending on the kind of trip you're looking for, you know, it does require some some uh, effort to get into. But you can get into some places in the Bounty Waters Canoe Area that are very, very, very low-impact fishing. So when you're out there casting your fly on the water and you look around and you are the only people on the lake, that's a good feeling. So I call it solitude. Solitude, yeah. Yeah, yeah so... It, it, kind of hard to find that shoulder-to-shoulder fishing out there. It is. You know, the combat fishing <laughs> versus the solitude fishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's one thing to look forward for sure, and it is a totally different place. I mean, I haven't been there in a long time. It's back in my high school days. We went up there, 
went some did some canoeing and portaging from lake to lake, and uh, it's just a wonderful place. Paul in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, asked about what time of year, and we've got a couple of questions about time of year up there. Sure. Because I know you got to get the ice off the lake before we can start fly fishing, right? Oh, well, exactly. You know, typically the ice goes off anywhere from April, you know, mid-April to that first week in May. Now, last year was kind of an eye-opening experience. We were sweating bullets for the opening of fishing, which was May 9th. On an average year, you're looking at uh, like April 22nd, April, you know, April 20th, in that area, the ice goes out. Now, for for fly fishing, uh, you know, the optimum time for fly fishing is, in my opinion, open water. Uh, I fly fish for just about every species up here. I know that most people that are probably listening to the show are interested in smallmouth bass, but let's not forget the other species of fish that we have here. Just after the ice goes out, it's an incredible opportunity for something different, I call, is, is fly fishing for lake trout. It's something that most people don't even think about doing, but it sure is fun. You have to hit it just right, you know, just after the ice goes out and right at the fishing opener until that water warms up. You can find good-sized lake trout within that upper 20 foot of water. Once the water starts to warm up, of course, the smallmouth bass fishing starts to kick into gear, and also the northern pike fishing. That pretty much holds true throughout the entire summer. And then during the fall, fall fly fishing can be absolutely incredible. Uh, that's when you typically get your big, that's when you get your, a lot of times you get some really big trophy, very large smallmouth bass. Okay, and what and the pike are... are back in the shallows then too, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know, the pike fishing, uh, just after the ice goes out, right around fishing opener, you're going to be able to catch pike um, almost sight fishing them in the shallows. That's an incredible opportunity for those people that like to pike fish. I, I think once you catch a 40-plus-inch pike on a fly rod, you're pretty much addicted. Yeah. And then, yeah. Pretty and exciting. Then, uh, it's unbelievable. And then, you know, what, once the water starts to warm up, of course, the pike are going to go deeper. And a furious fly, uh, pike fly fisherman, you're going to have to start changing and altering your, uh, your techniques. And we'll probably get into that a little later. Okay. So, and Alan Rupp kind of carries this further. He's from Beach Park, Illinois. He, he says, um, for smallmouth bass fishing, nice weather, easy portages, what time of year is best? So that uh, so he's thinking about I guess going pretty far back in doing some portage and I suppose he's talking about you know muddy mucky conditions that could be kind of you know um, yeah that those conditions vary from year to year I think probably one of the um, as an outfitter as a guide and a resort owner sometimes you get these questions it's you know you wish you had a crystal ball you know everybody wants to know when the optimum best time no bugs best fishing, and easy portages to get away from everybody. <laughs> and, yeah, that's a tough question. I think if you're, you know, for the best time of year, if you want the best fishing, you know, I always lean toward June. It seems that June is, is probably our best fishing month, not to say that the other months don't uh, produce very nice fish. But for mucky, buggy conditions, then you're looking at not coming in June because June's typically what we call our, you know, our insect month. You know, our, our most stable weather, the most stable conditions are July and August. 
and that's typically the busier of the of our season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Mel, I believe it was Mel sent this in, and he said he used to go up to a place called Nina Moose. And oh yeah, good old Nina Moose. Okay, and he used to portage between the two some 30 years ago, and he said he could catch all the walleyes he wanted back then. Is that <laughs> well, still, still the case? <laughs> you still can. You still can, okay. You still can. Okay. As long as you left a few in there for me. Okay, all right. Well, um, and that's uh, one of the joys about being up here, Roger, and, and, and for all the listeners, is, you know, the Boundary Waters is, uh, is, a, is a restricted area. It, it's restricted by the use of permits. Everybody that enters the Boundary Waters canoe area needs to have a permit, and it goes per group. There's nine people allowed on each permit, and cost you $16 per person per per trip, and then that's for your overnight camping fees. So each entry point going into the wilderness area only has certain number of, of permits available per day if that makes sense. It gets, sounds kind of confusing, but it's not. So that, Does that make the, it uh, difficult to get a permit? Well, it, 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 it definitely can for some of the most, what I call the popular, the, the really popular canoe routes. You know, if you're looking at July, you know, the week of July 4th, yeah, there could be difficulty getting a specific entry point permit if that's exactly where you want to go. But if you're flexible and if you gave us a call, and we can definitely try to steer you in the right direction. Uh, if one permit's not available, you know, what would be the second alternative? Okay. Now, you said that includes your camping as well? Yes, that would include your camping fees also. And do you, you um, so when you, if you're trying to look forward and reserve something in advance, how far ahead to, to guarantee that you're going to get a particular permit would you have to? Well, you know, the best thing to do if if you're absolutely 100% sure that you want to do a Boundary Waters trip is to definitely reserve a permit as early as you possibly can. There is what we call a uh, a permit lottery system, which is starts in the beginning of January and then ends at the end of January, where you you put your name in and then it's drawn for through a lottery system. Now that, of course, has expired, and those permits have been already already been issued. However, there's still tons of permits available for various entry points on various days. It, it was just it, it's one of those things where for return customers that absolutely know that they're coming back to say, okay, I want to go on on entry point 31, for instance, on this day, uh, your your best bet is to get on the uh, into the lottery system. But if, uh, you know, if, if you didn't, it's not a big deal. There's typically plenty of permits available throughout the summer that we can get you in somewhere. Okay, okay. Are we talking about, uh, I mean, this sounds like out west when we try to get permits to do a raft trip. Right. Uh, and the lotteries we have to deal with here. But uh, does this, are you excluded as a, as a commercial guide? Can you go in anywhere you want any time, or do you Absolutely have... not. I'm, oh. I'm on the same page as, as every... Um, as the general public, I have to have permits and apply for permits, uh, just like everybody else. Okay, so I'm not, ex- I, I'm not excluded from the system. Okay, so if whether whether you get a permit directly with the is it the fish and game that you're dealing with? Uh, it's actually the uh, um, U.S. Forest Service. Okay, U.S. Forest Service. Yep. If I go to them to get a permit, or if I come to you to use your services, 
you acquire the permit then for me? Is that yep? The we we are what is considered an outfitter, uh, which is a cooperator with the United States Forest Service. And through our business, we are able to obtain permits for our customers through the reservation system. You can either do it on your own or you can give us a call, and we'll be more than happy to help you out. Okay. Okay, good. Well, let's, uh, we need to take a little break here, but when we come back, we'll, we'll dig into this a bit more. Sure. Royal Gorge Anglers is a full-service fly shop on the Arkansas River in Canyon City, Colorado. They also provide walk, wade, and float fishing guide service on the Arkansas, South Platte, and several private high country ranches. They specialize in fly fishing education and work to assure that everyone taking a trip leaves a better fly fisher. For the best service and the most fun in the southern Rockies, visit the folks at Royal Gorge Anglers, the gateway to southern Colorado. Located conveniently on US 50, only 45 minutes from Colorado Springs. For more information, visit their website at www.royalgorgeanglers.com. That's www.royalgorgeanglers.com. Or call them at 888-994-6743. It's 888-994-6743. We're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're uh, talking with Jim Blauk about fly fishing the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in northern Minnesota. If you'd like to ask Jim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your question, and we'll receive it immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Well, Jim, um, you mentioned that you do have uh, a business up there. Tell us a little bit about your business and, and you know, what's going on with you and, and the fly fishing world. Well, sure. Um, our business is called Moose Track Adventures. We are a, a lodge or a resort, uh, a guide service, and an outfitter for the Boundary Waters and also Quetico canoe trips. We have lakeside cabins available for, for people coming up with their families. We offer guided day trips, whether you're interested in not only fly fishing but also fishing trips. We offer uh, ecology trips, ecotourism trips, and also extended uh, Boundary Waters and Quetico guided wilderness canoe trips. We're located about seven miles outside of Ely, and uh, we're located on what is called the White Iron Chain of Lakes, which is about uh, 10,000 acres of, of water outside from your dock, and uh, we have plenty of fly fishing opportunities, fishing opportunities, and family activities here at the resort. And if you want uh, additional information, you can visit our website at www.moosetrackadventures.com or feel free to do it the old-fashioned way and give me a call at 800-777-7091. Terrific, terrific, great. Well, there you go, folks. If you're looking at taking a trip, you know, you know where to go and who to call there. Well, we've got a couple questions about, um, I think, some people think that it's pretty rugged country up there. We've got Don in the Plains, Ohio, wondering if it's a good destination with, with children, young children who are just learning to fish. And then Gary Richardson in Howell, Michigan, says, would you recommend this for a 63-year-old man with a good heart but a bad knee and asthma that loves to fish for smallmouth. <laughs> that sounds like me. i got a bad back and a bad knee, too. But yeah, Hang in there, um, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> hang in there, Gary. It gets better. Um, you know, Roger, this, this place has uh, so many different opportunities that we 
one of our specialties, and I, I try to stress this to people, is that we try to really customize a trip to satisfy your needs and abilities. Whether you're interested in coming to the resort and doing just day trips, we have uh, direct access to Entry Point 31 from the resort, which uh, offers lots of different opportunities for day trips. Um, you can throw a canoe on or you can you know, just go on your own and, and go to uh, other various entry points nearby. And for, for fishing with kids, like I said, there's, there, there's plenty of opportunities at the resort or if you're interested in an extended trip, for somebody interested in taking a, 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 a child, especially at like age four, you know, I would recommend them to contact me um, to specifically uh, try to route them so that their their trip really really fits around that kid. I've uh, I've had the uh, wonderful opportunity to guide lots of kids on my trips and. Uh, one thing that I, well, actually, the first thing that I tell the parents is that the, this trip is for the kid and not the parents. Um, it has to be geared completely around making sure that that child that has a great time, catches some fish, eats s'mores, plays some games, gets to swim, and has a, a great experience because you want them to come back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you want them to have a good experience. Yeah, you want them to have a very, it's a very positive experience. You don't want to take them out and beat them up, make them carry a 50-pound pack and a canoe across the portage. Yeah, so the key is to make sure that they have fun. Well, you kind of answered, I think, uh, Chuck uh, Kaminsky's question about can you do day trips and stay in a base camp or could stay at your place or in Ely or, or thereabouts and uh, just do day trips. He kind of answered his question. Uh, you know, Ely has lots of uh, lodging opportunities. You know, we're a resort, but I always uh, always kind of joke around with people. You know, I've been on the Ely Chamber uh, of Commerce board. I'm an ex-board member now. But, you know, my goal is to get people to come up to this area. And whether you stay at a, um, at our place or, or a motel in Ely or a different resort, that's your decision. But, of course, we'd love to have you stay here at Moose Track Adventures. But there's so many opportunities for families you know, not just fish, not just fly fishing opportunities, but fishing and and hiking and camping. It's it, it's a great it's a great place to be. Well, now we we know that we can uh, canoe in and portage and and do some backcountry camping. What about campgrounds in and around entrance points uh, or on some of the the out, outlying lakes? There is that possible? Absolutely, there are. Um, Within the, within the Boundary Waters Canary Wilderness, as I mentioned previously, you do need an overnight camping permit to camp on the designated, uh, uh, designated camping spots on each lake. Uh, it's on a first-come, first-served basis. But outside the wilderness area, which would be the Superior National Forest, there are many, many places to go where you do not need a permit. You can either motorboat in or paddle in. There are... There are Forest Service campgrounds, which are drive-to. So if you have an RV or if you have a, you know, a pop-up or whatever you need, there, that opportunity is here also. Well, we also, just another little plug, but we do have a, a small campground at our resort. Okay. Phil Panko, who's from Minnesota, he's put in a couple questions here online, uh, Jim, but one of them he says, uh-huh. Talking about permits, is there any is is there much in the way of any good fishing outside the permitted area, in lakes and so forth around there? 
where you could just go for an extended, you know, like a weekend or something? And Absolutely. There's okay. within a, a, a 20 mile radius of Ely, there are over 500 lakes that are not within the wilderness area. So that gives you an idea of your opportunities. In fact, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've lived here for 20 years and I, and I still, I look at my map and I go, oh, well, how come I haven't fished that lake? You know? Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it gets to be almost overwhelming and that's why it is such a, there's such an opportunity up here. It's endless. <laughs> okay, here's what I've never had before. Okay. Uh, online. <laughs> And then we're going to move on to talk about some watercraft. But uh, Chuck Kaminsky wants to know, where's the best place to eat in Ely? <laughs> I've never had a question like that one before. Well, I, I think it all depends on what you're looking for. What was his name? Chuck Kaminsky. Hey, Chuck, well, it, it all depends on what you're looking for. Um, in my opinion, if you're looking for the best breakfast, you got to go to Britain's Cafe on Sheridan Street. or on Yeah, Sheridan Street. Um, if you're looking for a good steak, I would probably have to go to the steakhouse. Okay. There you go, Chuck. Guy's hungry already. Man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've got lots of questions here, Jim, about watercraft. And, okay. Uh, first one up is, you know, obviously, Boundary Waters Canoe Area. Uh, Tom Murray in Pooler, Georgia, wants to know, uh, what do you look for in a fly fishing canoe why do you pick one canoe over another? You know, are there, are there better better canoes than other canoes, so forth? Well, I, yeah, absolutely. One of the most, not difficult, I, I think fly fishing out of a canoe is something that you need to get a little bit used to. Um, I recommend my customers prior to coming up here, especially for an extended trip, is to um, sit in a lawn chair in your backyard and, and, and learn how to cast uh, out of a lawn chair. Oh, good tip. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's sitting down and and casting off your, you know, of course your casting shoulder. The best canoe, I think that's going to be personal taste for me. I've I've done this a long time and I'm a Winona canoe guy. So I I, I love Kevlar. I I can't stand putting my butt in a in an aluminum canoe. Uh that's my personal preference. Of course you want to look at stability and room. There's not many canoes out there that you're going to be able to stand up in and cast without provide or without you know potential uh, hazards especially if you catch a five pound smallie and it's uh wreaking havoc on you so what i look for is, is a canoe that has uh, maneuverability there's a trade-off between speed and maneuverability you have a tracking canoe which is going to go straight as an arrow across the lake it doesn't have a lot of what we call rocker it's going to track really nice and go across the lake they're typically a little bit narrower. For me, I, I, I like a wider canoe, a little flatter bottom. Um, of course, they're, you're going to lose speed, but that's okay. I'm not out there to set a world record. I like to be able to cast, travel, and carry an awful lot of weight with me because I, I like to eat well when I'm out there. Sure, sure. <laughs> I like to have a cooler in there, too, I suppose. Well, I don't know about a cooler. <laughs> no coolers. Okay, this is well, a well, you could have one, but they're they're tough to portage. Yeah, yeah. Now, so, you know, I, uh, I guess in a nutshell, maneuverability is 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 number one because for me as a guide, I'm trying to keep my customer in position all the time, and if I have to do five more back paddles or uh, a sculling paddle to get you in position because it's a 
that canoe doesn't have enough rocker, then by the end of the day, I've done about 50,000 more strokes than I had to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so when, you, go when, ahead. You're, uh, when you're guiding somebody, you just have one uh, fly fisher in a canoe with you as a guide? Yep. Is that how it works? Exactly. Okay. Um, t- typically, if I have big, you know, big-time fly fishing gurus, I call them, you know, we have, I have multiple guides, and, and the, the optimum situation is, let's say you have two, two customers and two guides, or if you have experienced people uh, that know how to canoe and know how to handle the canoe, of course, you're going to have one person in the stern of that canoe, and then you can trade off. The guy in the bow is the one that's doing the casting. And, of course, the, you know, if, if conditions are optimum and the, the winds are light and you're not getting beat up by waves or wind, yeah, two guys can cast out of a canoe no problem as long as you're you're fairly good casters. But to really optimize your your fly fishing uh, ability and and to stay in that in, in that zone is to have the the stern men keep you in position all the time. Okay, now we had a question here from Jim Mouser and uh, Moser. I'm sorry, Jim, if I mangle your name there. And he's in West Virginia. He says, and he clarified this by saying, "What solo canoe is very stable that you would recommend? Is there a difference between stability if you're just one that, person versus two?" That's a great question. Um, I traveled literally thousands of miles in a solo canoe, and uh, I'm I'm very comfortable in a in a Winona Prism. I think that is probably for me that's the best all around canoe for not only traveling and portaging and fly fishing out of. It's got good, it's got really good stability. It, it's lightweight, it's stable, and it's I've caught many many fish out of it fly fishing. So yeah, you, you know, you got to look at stability. There's there's a lot of solo boats out there that that are fast, but they don't have very good stability. So you got there's there's definitely a trade-off. Okay. And the key is to find something and that that fits your needs. If you're a traveler, then you want to go for something faster. If you're a fisherman and a you know, a, a gear hauling person like myself, then you want something that's stable and it's going to be a little bit slower. Okay. Now, are there places to, uh, Mar- Matt Sullivan in Colorado, one though, are there places to rent canoes up in that area? Sure. <laughs> this is the canoe capital of the world, and uh, we, here at Moose Track Adventures, we have canoe uh, canoe rental available. Okay. And other places, I take it, as well. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's, Ely is the number one, number one or number two place in the country for outfitters per capita. Okay. Okay. What about kayaks? Are they suitable you know, kayaks, for the area? Kayaks are becoming more and more common. I think kayaks are, are a great way to travel for the day. I, I had the opportunity to do a couple of guided kayak trips back in my uh, <laughs> my younger years, and uh, they're fast. They're very efficient on the water. They're a lot of fun, except that they're very difficult to pack, especially if you're doing an extended trip. Now, if you're just doing a couple day or or something, then yeah, that might work. But if you're looking at an extended trip of four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days, it's very difficult to get that amount of gear in a kayak. You can get it in, but then what happens is that you get to the portage, you have to unpack the entire kayak, put all your stuff into a pack. Pack your stuff across the portage, and then you got to portage the kayak, which are not very easy to portage. It's not very lightweight. Right. 
right. and you get to the other end of the portage, you have to repack the kayak, and the next portage may only be a quarter mile away. So you're spending an awful lot of time packing and unpacking a kayak. But now there are places to go up here if you are absolutely a kayaker, for instance, going up into Moose Lake, up in the Basswood and doing the Basswood chain area, that's very nice kayakable water. It's big water, not a lot of portages, so there, the opportunity is definitely there. We had a, another question by Phil Panko, and he says, uh, this is online, Jim. He says, I, I know it's sacrilege to tell you I've lived in Minnesota all my life and have only fished the BWCA only once, but I plan to get there more often now that I've, I've gone. What equipment for packing light would you recommend? I know that the area is endless and taking a lot of gear long can be problematic. Since you were just talking about that, I thought that's an appropriate question. Yeah. Um, Are you talking like backpacking, you know, like, like you pack for a backpacking trip? Well, uh, in a way. I'm, uh, I'm a backpacker uh, by heart. I, I did the Appalachian Trail back in uh, 1980, or 1986. And, uh, it's kind of hard to remember being as it old is. as you are now, right? It is. A long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and, and that's kind of what brought me to this area. You know, uh, <laughs> canoe camping is a, is, a, is a cross between backpacking and canoeing. You have to travel lightweight, but yet you can take a little more luxuries with because you're not carrying this stuff for long periods of time. The main difference between backpacking and canoe camping and portaging is the kind of pack that you use. One thing that you that I really try to steer people away from is using the internal or the uh, or internal or external frame packs. They don't fit in a canoe very well. You know, they're long, they're bulky, they don't fit there. Uh, we use uh, top-of-the-line uh, canoe camping gear um, there are portage packs where everything fits in very neatly into a canoe pack. Now, the canoe pack is basically designed with the same harness system as an internal or, ex- or external frame pack, except that you can fit a whole lot more gear in them. <laughs> so, but they would fit in a canoe very nicely. Would that and, be like uh, the, the dry bags that are, are like... No, um, we use... Uh, um, Either Granite Gear or Condos made packs. Now, Condos is a, is a uh, Ely company that makes excellent canoe packs. They're they're kind of like the old Duluth packs. I'm not sure if anybody's out there is familiar with the Duluth pack, but that's what the Voyagers and uh, that's what they were the old canvas style pack with a leather strap around your shoulder, and they would use what they call a tump line, which would go around your forehead to help stabilize that pack. Now, things have come a long way. Technology is a wonderful thing. Now it's more like just a standard backpack where you have the shoulder strap, the sternum strap, the nice padded hip belt. But they pack down very nicely. They've got lots of straps on them to really cinch things down. And what we do inside, uh, inside those packs is, is put a, uh, a six mil plastic bag to seal them up. Okay. Uh, a lot of people use rafting dry bags, you know, which, like a seal line bag. Which are which are fine, um, but they're still they're in that shape, but they're too long. So you got to they just don't quite fit in a canoe quite right. Okay, okay, good, good, good tips. One more question, then we'll take a little break here. Uh-huh. Paul Caldwell in Roanoke, Virginia, asks about other types of craft. He says, uh, are there any areas that you could use a pontoon craft 
with a trolling motor, um, or do you have to do canoe and paddle kind of things? Any any lake other than uh, I should say any lake within the uh, wilderness area is non-motorized, um, other than like Moose Lake or part of Basswood Lake in this area or Trout Lake. Now there you're restricted to a uh, 25 horsepower motor or less, but otherwise any lake outside the wilderness area you can have whatever you want. Uh, you know, if it's a small lake that you want to portage into and take a trolling motor and a, and a little belly boat or, or a, a pontoon, absolutely. In fact, that's kind of a fun thing to do up here is you grab your belly boat, portage in to a small lake and go largemouth bass fishing or smallmouth bass fishing or even uh, there's a couple of little secret little holes up here that have some nice muskies that are easy to get to and you can't have a big giant boat so you got to take something small. Okay, now maybe I'm, a, I'm confused. You didn't hear you correctly. You said inside the wilderness area, it's a it's a no motor zone basically. Exactly. But then you just said go in with the trolling motor on um, a pontoon nope. crafter. No. Okay. okay um, so I got that wrong. All right. Well, no. Just let me reiterate. Okay. Um, the, the entire Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Area. Okay. So that's the peripheral of of where we live here. Right. Is a non motorized area. Period. The, right. yeah. Period. Yeah. There are no sailboats, no snowmobiles, no no pontoon boats, no trolling motors, no battery-operated anything. Uh, now, there are, there, there, there's a few lakes, like, for instance, Moose Lake and part of Basswood Lake, which is right on the Canadian border. Um, portions of that area are open to a 16-foot boat with a 25-horsepower motor. And you can have a trolling motor, too, if you wanted. No sailboats, though. In fact, uh, South Farm Lake, which is connected to the lake that we're on, is a 25-horsepower limit within the wilderness area. Other than that, the rest of the entire chain of lakes that we live on is open to motorboat traffic, sailboats, uh, water skiing, whatever you're interested in doing. So there's, there's lots of opportunities. Okay, okay, good. Let's take a quick break, and uh, when we return, Jim will be answering more of your questions about tactics for fishing the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. Sure. Women's Fly Fishing in Alaska is owned and operated by well-known female guide Pudge Kleinkoff. Women's Fly Fishing offers several lodge-based fly fishing schools for women, as well as an array of small guided trips for women and couples to some of Alaska's best-known waters for salmon, rainbow trout, arctic grayling, and char. Pudge also leads saltwater fly fishing trips to Mexico each spring. Beginners are welcome and equipment is provided. Learn more about fly fishing for women at www.womensflyfishing.net. That's www.womensflyfishing.net. Or call Pudge at 907-274-7113. It's 907-274-7113. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jim Blauk about fly fishing the Boundary Waters canoe areas. If you'd like to ask him a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question, and uh, we'll get it immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show. Okay, now let's move on to some equipment issues. We've got quite a few questions about that too, Jim. Tom and Mike, and we've got a couple online here all asking about rods and what to bring up there, and 
Mike Ormsby in Ontario, Canada, went into quite a bit of detail considering that you might be fishing for pike and you might be fishing for smallmouth and maybe largemouth and might involve a lot of equipment. What's your what's your recommendation on rods, uh, selection of rods that you should bring? Well, uh, my recommendation is, is if, if you had only one rod in a dream world, I would probably bring a seven-weight, nine-foot, seven-weight fast-action fly rod. Okay. Um, that would cover smallmouth bass, your smaller end northern pike. Now, if you you know you, if you happen to uh, latch into a you know 45 inch pike, hang on and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> but and that has happened. But if you're looking, you know, I, I always carry a couple different rods. Of course, you know, guiding you got to have everything, and you always bring way too much. You know, referring to you know to Mike up there in Ontario. If I were going to bring, uh, if I had my choice of rods, I would probably bring a six weight and an eight weight. That way you can have some really good action on some smallmouth bass and uh, maybe some smaller fish on your six weight, you know, casting your smaller flies. But once you start getting into pike fishing, you know, that's a whole different monster. If you're okay with uh, uh, casting some smaller flies, you know, the, 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 the two and a half, three inch flies, for pike, then a seven weight or an eight weight is going to do just fine. But if you're going for the big hogs, like I try to, and uh, I try to get some customers on to, you know, that's when I, I break out the ten weight because you're casting a lot of lead, and uh, it in order to get that out there, especially in windy conditions, you got to have that backbone of that rod. But if I had only one rod and it, one rod only, it would be a seven weight fast action fly rod okay okay what's it feasible on a trip to bring along can you bring three rods is there room enough in the boat and you know uh, yeah typically i i bring two rods and i i have my customers bring two rods you don't want to be stuck out there with a busted rod you know duct tape's a wonderful thing it just kind of impedes the action of a fly rod <laughs> yeah i bet <laughs> <laughs> you know sticks are great too but that you know anyway so I always bring two rods, and it's, it's, it's usually my 7 or my 8 weight or, and, and my 10 weight. Uh, I love the pike fish. That's kind of a, a passion of mine next to smallmouth bass. So I try to go after those 40-plus-inch pike. And in order to handle those flies necessary to go after them, you got to, you know, a minimum of, of a 9 weight, uh, and 10 weights are even better. What about 4-piece versus 3-piece? I think that's a personal preference. I'm a four-piece for for going into the wilderness area. I, I go four-piece all the way. Okay. Or, or three-piece. You know, it all depends on, you know, if you have a three-piece, great. Uh, four-piece, definitely, because it packs in to your pack or on the outside of the pack. And definitely bring a rod tube. Uh, I've had some customers and some people that just bring it in a, a soft case. You don't want to do that. A, a, a nice lightweight aluminum rod tube is going to save your your uh, $500 fly rod. Right, right. Let's talk a, a bit about lines here, Jim. Um, Randy in Millington, Tennessee says, do you use floating line or do you use intermediate or sinking line most of the time? I, br <laughs> I bring it all. <laughs> you bring it all. Okay. <laughs> I bring it all. Um, absolutely. Unless I'm specifically fishing, let's say, the spawn. You know, the water temperatures start to hit that 65-degree mark, and uh, I know that the males are protecting the beds. 
and I, I'm in that. I'm in the spawn, uh, which is a very action-packed time of year. That's what everybody lives for. Me personally, I'm a pre-spawn. I, I think that's the biggest pre-spawn and also late season for the big hogs. But for for catching numbers, you know, on the, on the surface, yeah, sure. I, I'm probably not going to bring any sink tip or, or any sinking line at all uh, because I'm going to be hitting the surface. But then that time of year, if you're up in the wilderness area, you know, and that water temperature is hitting that 60, 65 degree mark, your bigger northern pike are starting to head down in uh, a little bit deeper water. So I want to have the ability to get down to them too. So you definitely, I would definitely bring a sink tip. Sink tip, okay. Yeah, and you know, it's that time of year. But I bring it all. You know, I always bring a full sinking line, and not that I use it very often. The only time I use a full sinking line, and maybe we're getting into the tactics here, but. No, that's ahead. kind of a that's kind of a last resort line of mine that you know when not, when all else is failing and and I can't seem to figure them out I can't get down to them or or you know I'm about ready to bust my rod in half I'll break out a sinking line and even put a a, a floating like a Dahlberg diver a floating fly on and drag that line across the bottom to try to see where they're suspended at mm-hmm. and uh, that can be a very effective way. Use uh, the like the intermediate intermediate clear uh, sinking lines. Yeah, those are um, active on the lakes. Yep, absolutely. Okay, let's see. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's carry that a, a bit further. Then uh, talking about smallies primarily here, because it is a, a whole other world to start fishing for for big pike and so forth. And <laughs> you've got the you know bite tippet and all that other stuff. Yeah, you got shock tippet and everything else. So, um, but uh, Ted. Hasselbring in Nashville wants to know, can you spend a few minutes talking about how you rig up for smallies? And I think he's talking probably about leader and tippet and so forth. And sure. Well, like, like, like I said, uh, my favorite, probably my favorite rod is, is a fast action 9 foot or nine, even a 9.6. I started getting into a little bit of a longer rod when I had customers having difficulty keeping the fly off the, off the water on the back cast. Uh, and that seemed to help a little bit, but for rigging up, you know, I, I like a, uh, for me, I use a, an expert distance casting line. I like that distance because I like to be able to cover as much water as I can and to get that fly out there quickly. If you're a good caster, uh, an expert distance line is, uh, is an excellent line to use uh, or, or just a bass bug line. Scientific anglers and also Rio, they all they all put out uh, an excellent bass bug line, and that's got that you know that pretty good fat head on it, so it it really throws those big bugs out quickly. You know, depending on wind conditions and and the and the size of the fly that I'm using, my my leader is going to be anywhere between seven and nine foot, and I'll have it tipped with whatever. Uh, with, with whatever tippet I, I feel necessary is for the for the conditions. If I'm using a a fly that's not rolling out, I'm gonna put a little bit of a uh, little sti- little stiffer tippet on it to get that get that fly to roll out. So yeah, that that's kind of my my rig. I'm not sure if you what, what other information do you think you would want there? Uh, what what pound tippet would you use? Oh, I, I always start out with uh, like zero x the one x or two x leader. And then, depending on on what what fly I'm using, it's going to probably be, you know, like a like a zero uh, X tippet. 
you know, okay. any, any, anywhere between a six to eight pound tippet on that, on the end of that leader. Okay, okay. I'd like to jump into flies here and talk about flies. There's a lot of questions about flies, but jumping back a little bit, I saw one question come in on the internet. Nick in Sotus Bay area, New York. He says he's fished in a canoe most of his life, and he loves fly fishing out of a canoe, but he likes sight fishing too. And being so low to the water, he finds it hard to see. He wanted to know if there are any good pontoon attachments on the market so a fly fisher could do some standing in a canoe and make it more stable. Um, actually, there are. There's a company called Bring Creek Outfitters uh, out of Minnesota that build or that should say manufacture some uh, pontoons that do fit on the side of canoes. And they, they do work very well. It, it's that give and take thing. I, I, I think if you're looking at wanting or needing to stand up in a canoe, then absolutely I would probably invest in, in some uh, side pontoons for, for the canoe. Uh, I suppose that would pay off, too, if you're, you know, sight fishing for pike or something like that. Exactly. Want to try to get a little higher. Than, yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, flies. Lots of questions on flies, and uh, a lot came in on the Internet. Basically, people want to know, what flies are your go-to flies? So, <laughs> The million-dollar question. That's it. That, you want that, that really secret one that you've been hiding in the back room <laughs> that you don't even tell your wife about? Come on now. The hula popper. <laughs> <laughs> or, or 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 Pete Parker's propeller. Yeah, it's our uh, spook. Yeah. Oh, that's spitting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Roger, that's that's uh, that's a it is a million dollar question. Uh, you know, being a guide, I have I have so many different flies that I go to. Um, you know, what, what are my go to flies? I, I would never leave home without a Clouser Meadow. I would okay. never leave home without a uh, a swimming frog. Uh, I would never leave home without a bunny leech and probably a, like a scalpin or a, you know, some poppers like chuggers. Uh, I, I wouldn't leave home without those. Okay. Those are, those are kind of my stand go-to bys. flies. Yeah. yeah, my standbys. You know, and then, you, of course, you're varying the colors and you're varying the size. You're varying the sink rates. And, and that's the key is, is to be versatile, to have a good arsenal in your box, and then you have... You know, you always pull that one out that, you know, like a red-faced wobbler. You know, you throw that out there, and all of a sudden, wham, you haven't caught a fish on that in two years. And next thing you know, you're, 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 you're hammering them, and you only got three in your box. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That, that's the way fly fishing is. Uh, up here, it's, it, it is, it's not like uh, fly fishing in Colorado or Montana where you have, you know, these, these specific hatches going on. Oh, and uh, I, I should say there's there's definitely one other one I would never leave home without, and that's a crayfish imitation. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. crayfish are you know that's their ma- one of their main forges here all summer long. You should definitely have a crayfish imitation, and and choose your favorite one. I have multiple ones that I use, and one day one works better than the other day. Uh, mm-hmm. So you you know don't stick with one brand or one tie, or you know I tie my own. I, I call it the magic fly. It's a, a fly I tie out of red squirrel tail and uh, grouse feathers, and I make it look like a crayfish. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's uh, that's kind of one of those that you put in your bottom of your box, and when everything else is failing, I pull out the magic fly. Okay. <laughs> well, what about poppers? Any particular poppers you go to? Uh, you know, I, I like the find? Shenandoah Chugger. That's, for me, that's been a good popper. 
I use the time I own with, you know, they're just too time consuming. Mm-hmm. I think if you find a popper, as long as it makes some noise and pushes the water and you work that popper correctly and you find the right color, you're going to catch, you're going to catch a smallmouth bass on the surface or a largemouth bass or a pike. The key is to find the color to match that day or that, that moment of that day. Sometimes they don't want a big splash. That's why I switched to like a sneaky peat. They don't cause as much uh, water commotion. They just kind of sneak across the top. They're very effective uh, when the uh, uh, smallmouth bass are eating dragonflies. So, you know, you got to be versatile. you got to have enough flies in your box to cover your arsenal. <laughs> now, the, you know, everything you mentioned there, uh, other than the crayfish, well, there's the crayfish, frogs, uh, poppers, kind of like a frog, basically, uh-huh. or some kind of small animal. But but everything else was is streamer types, uh, minnow imitations, that kind yep. of thing. Is, is there any need for any insect imitations? And if so, what what would those be? Definitely a mayfly. Um, mayfly. During the month of uh, the end of May, uh, you know they always say it's a mayfly, but up here they sometimes come out in July. And if the mayflies are hatching, of course you've got your uh, the ones that are hitting the surface, which is not very often, uh, the key is to use a, you know, a, a mayfly larva and get that out there. And, you know, that can be a very frustrating period of time for people that are out spin, spin casting or, you know, or bait casting. They're coming back, oh, fishing absolutely is terrible because the mayflies. Well, right. yeah, you know, there's a lot of mayflies going on, but you're not going to hook up a mayfly to your, uh, your bait casting rod. <laughs> Yeah. So a lot of times, that's an excellent time to get out there and start throwing some um, uh, mayfly larvae, and uh, you can get some really nice ones. Now, are there are there any bait fish fluctuations as to availability of certain bait fish to where you would use be using something different in say June versus August and September. Yeah, um, typically in the in the months of June, um, if if I'm going with like a clouser or a, you know a streamer, I'm not using a, a, a very large one. Maybe at the maximum two and a half inches. My magic number is two and a quarter. That's a uh, uh, that's a number that 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 was that that came up with with some research that the optimum size of prey of uh, five pound smallmouth bass are no bigger than two and a quarter inches. Uh, so I kind of went with that, and it does it does hold true at that time of year. Now in, in August, and I should say August, but more in September, and uh, later in that season, you know, after September 15th, uh, smallmouth bass in Minnesota's catch and release, and that's because that they they really start to congregate and school up on some of these mid lake reefs out here, and once you find them, it's a, you can really slaughter them. And what they're doing is they're they're feeding voraciously on bait fish to fatten up for that long winter, which we're having. So what I do then is I increase the size. I'm throwing out uh, almost pike size stuff to catch those big five, five-and-a-half, six-pound smallmouth. So they're out there feeding on big Cisco smelt, the, the biggest bait fish that they can find, because think about the the overall growth period of that minnow in the spring – you know, now it's uh, it went from two inches to two and a quarter up to three and a half. So it's grown significantly, and they're starting to search out that big bait. And lo and behold, you, you find them, and you're going to catch some big hogs. So what are the different type of bait fishes that you are trying to simulate? Um, mostly shiners. 
ciscos, uh, especially in the fall. Smallmouth bass are are notorious cisco-eating machines if that lake holds ciscos. Uh, a lot of the, the Canadian Shield lakes up here do. They got to be the deep, clear water lakes. Otherwise, you're you know you're trying to imitate a, a large minnow, whether it's a fathead or a shiner. Shiners are very uh, uh, prevalent up here, so you're looking at that two and a half to three inch size shiner in the fall, and then smaller in the spring. Okay. Well, we need to take a quick break, and then when we come back, Jim, let's talk about some strategies and presentation techniques for, for sure. The Paramarquette River Lodge, a full-service Orvis-endorsed lodge, fly shop, and guide service, is located on the banks of the historic Paramarquette River in Baldwin, Michigan, providing year-round lodging for the business or pleasure traveler as well as a full-service fly shop and guided trips for steelhead, salmon, or large resident brown trout. For more information, visit us at www.pmlodge.com. That's P-M like Paramarquette. PMLodge.com, or call them at 231-745-3972. That's 231-745-3972. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jim Blauks about fly fishing the Boundary Waters. So if you'd like to ask Jim a question, just go to our homepage and fill out the form there and submit your question, and we'll see if we can't get them answered here before the end of the show. Okay. Let's move on into some strategies and so forth. You've got a lot of lakes there. I assume some are shallow, some are deeper, different configurations and structure and so forth. So when you're going out to, to some of these lakes that are maybe unfamiliar, what uh, what's your strategy for, for finding the fish? I throw a dart at the map. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's That's called lake. spear fishing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It, it's Minnesota spear fishing. Yeah. Um, if I have not fished the lake, which there's not many that I haven't at least fished once or twice, the first thing I'm going to do is, of course, try to find a topographic map to try to find the bottom structure of that lake and uh, try to correlate that with, uh, with the time of year that I'm fishing. If I'm fishing, uh, you know, is it pre-spawn, is it, is it spawn, is it post-spawn, and that is all dependent on the water temperature. You know, I don't leave home without a little portable fish finder, uh, that's, uh, which has a temperature gauge on it, and I can also take temperatures throughout the entire water column so I can find out what's going on. But if I, if I have not fished a lake and I, and I don't even have a map, and this is kind of how I learned how to fish up here, I didn't have all the high-tech equipment. In fact, my first depth finder was a, a piece of string with a rock tied to it and depth marks tied, and I'd paddle along and see where it dropped off. So that was my depth finder. But what I do is I, I the, 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 uh, the first thing I'm going to do is look at the contours and the topography of the lake. You know, where's the points? Where's the bays? Is there a high cliff? Is there a steep drop-off? And, you know, what you see above the land, or I should say above the water, is kind of what's going to be below the water. So if you see a long, narrow point coming out, and if it's dropping off steep, that's going to continue into the into the lake you know so depending on the time of year if i'm looking for specifically smallmouth bass the first thing i'm going to do is look for look for structure look for the points look for bays and then go to the nearest one and turn my little fish finder on and start looking looking at the bottom what what do i have 
And if the water temperatures, you know, are between 50 and 60 degrees, the surface temperature, you know, you're looking at a pre-spawn period. So, you you know, you're going to be looking for fish anywhere between, uh, you know, 5 and 20 feet of water. Uh, they're going to be pre-spawn. They're not going to be up in the shallows yet. If it's uh, the water temperatures are up in, uh, you know, mid-60s, I'm going to be starting to head towards some of those south-facing bays where the water's warmed up, gravelly bottom, where they're going to have spawning grounds. And that's I'm going to start banging those banks. Well, now, when you say in the temperatures up in the 60s, are you talking about air temperature, right? Not no, no, I'm talking about water temperature. Okay, water temperature. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Everything. So what, what's that optimum temperature range that you're going to find? This the magic number? Yeah. <laughs> the magic number. In my book, the magic number is 63 degrees. If I have surface temperature in a bay, now, you know, you have, you have to look at the entire water, the entire water column. Um, and of course, water temperature, especially that upper foot, is going to vary throughout the day. So if right. you're there earlier in the day, let's say it's 8 o'clock in the morning and I get into a lake and I look around and I see a nice bay that's south facing, I get back in there and I look at my temperature and it's 60, you know, 62, 63 degrees. By golly, I, I, there's, there's going to be some smallies in the shallows. Uh, as that temperature warms up, and if it's south-facing bay, those smallmouth bass are going to be starting to come into that shallow, and they're going to be spawning. And then throughout the day, even in, in high-light conditions, as long as that water temperature doesn't get too warm, a lot of people think that they're going to be spawning right against the, the, the shoreline, you know, like right tight, which sometimes they do. But you're going to find that the bigger smallmouth uh, are going to hold into that four to even eight, nine feet. They're going to spawn a little bit deeper. And if, uh, the key is don't just start stripping. You know, uh, uh, let's say you're using a swimming frog. Don't strip, 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 and then strip right back to your canoe or your boat or whatever you're in. Make sure that you entice that all the way across that 10-foot zone and let that thing sit. In fact, a lot of times I have customers and myself, you know, strip, 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 count to 10. Before you touch that, count to 10 and then strip, and then count to 10. And, you know, nine not nine chances out of 10, that would be great, but uh, more often than not, that smallmouth bass is going to come shooting out of five, six, seven feet of water and attack that presentation rather than, you know, if you just stripped it right back to you, it's not going to be enticed. Okay. Now, you're, there you're talking about topwater stuff, right? That's, yeah, that's topwater stuff, which is, you know, I go back to topwater because that's like the ultimate in, in all smallmouth bass and bass fishermen's world. Um, yeah, like dry fly fishing for trout, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. it, right. It's the ultimate, uh, the, the five-pound smallmouth explosion on the water, something that you'll never forget. You know, subsurface is, is, is an excellent way to catch them. I always start on surface and then go down deep. Oh, okay. You know, I, that, that's, unless it's, you know, unless it's July in midday, then you, then I start down deep. Yeah. But if it's, you know, if, if I'm looking at the optimum time of, uh, of the season for some good possible surface action, by all means, I'm going to start on the surface, and then if nothing's happening, and then I'll keep customers on the surface, and I'll go down to Search see if they're down there. Yeah, yeah, And then, then we, then we switch out. We had a, a question come in here, Mike Wolf in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. He says, for your top water flies, do you prefer deer hair, hard plastic, or foam? Ooh, ah, man. 
You know, for for the art of fly fishing, and uh, there's nothing prettier than a than a swimming frog tied out of deer hair. It does have a different action, and I think sometimes it makes a difference. That, you know, they, they get waterlogged. You got to keep them. You know, you got to keep them uh, the, the floating on them. For overall fly fishing, I think it's a ball. Uh, for durability, no. If you're looking for something that's durable, the foam poppers that they have out nowadays are are incredible. You know, they, they, they last. They last. You can bounce them off rocks. You can, you know, they're great. Versus the balls, you know, the plastic body ones, you bounce them off a rock a few times, they come back, they're all chipped up. But, you know, that's okay, too. Okay. I, I think we've got a kind of an inside joke going on here, but uh, Jerry <laughs> Kenwood in California, he says, and, and we've already had some questions from Ted Hasselbring in, in Nashville, I'm going to try to connect this joke here. Hopefully it's legit. But uh, <laughs> he says, Jerry says, I know Ted uh, from Nashville. He's probably too embarrassed to ask if you can purchase California wine up there. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Oh, there you go, Ted. Yes, you Get can. on the plane. Let's go. Now, who's, the, who's in California? Well, Jerry's in California, but Ted's in Nashville, and he, evidently he likes California wines. So well, uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry, I lived in Santa Rosa for uh, uh, 17 months, so I have experienced that fine California wine and absolutely love it myself. <laughs> there you go. Okay, here's another thing about, and I suppose this would apply to uh, whether poppers or, or subsurface uh, flies, um, Rick in Maple Glen, Pennsylvania, wants to know if you use rattles in your flies. I, I personally do not. Uh, that's something that, no, I, I, I don't. Okay. Me personally. Another one on the Internet, a uh, good question. Pete Harrison from British Columbia, he says, what's the biggest challenge for a trout fisherman trying bass fishing for the first time? The biggest challenge, probably learning how to uh how to not be so you know there there's not a, as much finesse in in bass fishing as there is in like nymphing for for cutthroat where everything every little detail has to be specific a lot of times i tell customers if your fly is not in the water you're not going to catch anything you know so when you're standing on the rivers of of british columbia and you're doing all these beautiful fat false casts to try to get it in that perfect position for that ultimate drift, that doesn't happen here. The key is to get it out there in the water and then retrieve it and get it out there. Okay, another I hope one. that answers this question. Yeah, I think, and to me, uh, uh, the confinement of a, a canoe is going to be much different, I think. Um, it is, uh, and... The key is, you, you know, you got to take breaks. You know, if the fishing's hot, you're catching, you know, you're doing a 50, 50 to 100 fish a day, it's hard to get out of it, out of the canoe, but by golly, you know, you got to. But, you know, I, I also have to uh, stress again that the, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area is a wonderful place, but there's so many different opportunities outside the wilderness area that you don't have to be in a canoe. Um, you know, we've got boats rigged up for fly fishing out of and, and uh, um, things like that. So it all depends on what kind of adventure you're into. Well, what a, when you're in the Boundary Waters and you're in the backcountry there, is there any need or desire to fish from the shore, or is that just? No, absolutely. You know, there's, being on the Canadian Shield Lakes, there's, uh, um, there's, there's lots of uh, 
open points, you know, they're big rocks that go shooting down into the lake. And you can you can walk to shoreline, find a nice point. You you're 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 definitely going to be more limited than you would be than, you know, bouncing the shore in a canoe. There's also especially like in later in the season when you know July and August start to hit and the water levels are starting to drop. I like to do some trips up along the border and uh we hit some uh border rivers. And you can actually, you know, park your canoe and get out and walk for a mile down the river and start fishing some of the deeper pools that are going to hold smallmouth. Now, granted, they're not, they may not be the big giant six-pounders, but, you know, two, three, four-pound smallmouth bass on the river standing on shore is a lot of fun itself. Okay, so a lot, a lot of different opportunities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, um, any other, you know, strategies around you know presentation or retrieves or anything that you could share with us that, that might help the folks out well um i think one of my my biggest recommendations is that people get stuck in uh um, a certain presentation you know whether you're starting out on surface and 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 you're going to do that for an hour you know if you haven't had a rise uh by golly you know let's switch up uh, and start getting a little deeper. Start working that water column. And that requires either different flies or different, you know, different sink rate flies. And if, and if nothing's happening then, you know, then you gotta go to the, uh, you know, I, I, I call it just, you know, flying off the wall. Put, put different, put a, put a full sinking line on, uh, try different techniques. By golly, you may be surprised that, you know, these, uh, Different techniques may work. Uh, sink tips are, are a very valuable arsenal in, in fly fishing up here, especially after that after the spawn when things start going into post spawn and they're getting into that 10 to 15 foot range. Get a sink tip on, and you're def, you have to slow down your retrieve, and uh, you know keep that try to keep that fly in the strike zone. Jim, how much, uh, I, I know when we did a show with Kelly Gallup and we were talking about big streamer fishing for trout off the banks up in, you know, on the Madison, places like right. that. And he was talking, you know, I, I can't remember his interval, but it was, I would say, you know, five or ten minutes, and then he'd switch color. In other words, he's using white, then he goes to yellow, then yep. he goes to red. I, I am constantly after, I, I usually do, uh, do about 15 minutes. Maybe I'm, I'm more stubborn than Kelly. <laughs> but, but, but when you when you think you're you're in the right zone, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, if you think you're in the zone, and it, it's all dependent on water temperature, and of course, you know, uh, you have you know weather conditions and things like that. If you had a cold front blast through, even though you have a 63, 64, or 65 degree water temperature, you know, a cold front blast through, the the, the, the smallies are going to slide in a little bit deeper. Uh, they're they're you know off that first break. Uh, and, that, and that comes with the experience, you know. So I have to trust my gut to say, you know, I have to get down into 15 feet. Well, and if I'm not getting in 15 feet, I'm going to try deeper, 20 feet. And that's just, uh, I think that comes with experience. Try to, don't get stuck in a rut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's not working, change up. If it, if it ain't working, something's wrong. Yeah. And then change it up. And it, it, there are days, though, where you can throw out your entire tackle box and things just aren't going your way, and that's fishing. That's the way it goes. Well, I've, I've got time for one more, and, and this is going to be kind of a, a testimonial and a question at the same time. But uh, Brian O'Keefe wrote in, and I know you've 
Fish with Brian, and Brian's been on our show several times and a very well respected in the industry. And he says, Jim, as a past customer of yours, I want people on Ask About Fly Fishing to know that of all my travels and great angling opportunities, my week with you and Chris has to be one of my all-time favorite trips. You combine wilderness adventure with a great sense of humor and incredible knowledge of the area's history, the flora and fauna, which made the trip the great topwater bass and pike fishing a bonus. My question is, what sport shows are you going to this year? Maybe I'll see you there. Well, that's very nice of Brian. Yeah, very nice, I, <laughs> I think. I didn't uh, have to pay him for that one, huh? Yeah, you didn't even have to pay him. Uh, unsolicited. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, I'm going to be at the uh, the Midwest Fly Fishing Expo down in uh, Minneapolis, and that is uh, in March. And I will also be at the uh, the Northwest Sports Show and also in Minneapolis, and that is also in March. Okay. So uh, coming March, I'll be down at those two shows and if any of you listeners out there or in the area, if you have any other questions or just stop by, it would be, be a great time to chat with you. And if you do have any questions uh, between now and then or any time, just give me a call. Great, great. Nice offer. Thanks uh, Thanks for doing that. Well, uh, Jim, unfortunately it's time to wrap things up. But uh, when we return, we're going to be giving away a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers, a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine and a dozen of Jim's favorite smallmouth bass flies. So stick with us, folks. Family Ties, and that's T-Y-E-S, Family Ties is an organization which uses a shared interest in fly fishing and fly tying to enhance youth development and family relationships. They utilize resources in schools, communities, and businesses, and they invite your participation. Go to their website, www.familyties.com, and see what they're up to. Family Ties, where every fish is a trophy and every kid is a hero. Well, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. Uh, you can find a link on our homepage in the section on tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on the link, leave your comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate uh, I'd like to know what you think. Now is the time to give away our prizes. So let's see here. The first thing we're going to do here, Jim, is we're going to do drawings for the first two and the... The first prize we're going to give away is a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. Always, always a great gift to have or an extension if you've already got a membership. So let's see. I'm going to use our database and do a random pick. And we've got Don Ribergard or Ribergard in California. Don Ribergard in California. So congratulations, Don. And you've got a three-year membership to the Federation. We'll be contacting you by email to get your information, uh, by the way, on both these drawings. So congratulations. Now, our second winner, and by the way, the, if you'd like to find out more about the Federation of Fly Fishers, just go to their website. That's www.fedflyfishers.org. That's www.fedflyfishers.org. And uh, our second gift is a year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine. You can learn more about that at www.flyfusionmag.com, www.flyfusionmag.com. And our winner for that one-year subscription is Martin Beach, Martin Beach, and he gets that one-year subscription to Fly Fusion, and he's in, Martin's in Missouri. So congratulations to both you gentlemen, and enjoy your subscriptions and memberships. And now... Here we go. We're going to give away your your 12 flies here, Jim. 
And the way we do this is that uh, I ask a question about something we've talked about, and first person to answer it correctly, and I'm going to make you be the judge here, Jim. So uh, <laughs> first person to send in the proper uh, answer along with their name and location in that text box on the front page gets that dozen uh, of your favorite smallmouth uh, bass flies. So, folks, here's the question. There was a magic temperature that Jim said when I pinned him down. What's that magic temperature for, you know, for catching or locating smallmouth bass? So what's that magic number? First person to send that in is going to get that dozen flies from Jim. So, Jim, I'm checking here. They're okay. madly typing at the moment, I'm sure. And, <laughs> wow, that was quick. That Jim, was quick. Jim, Jim Moser in, uh, in West Virginia it says 63 degrees. Is that correct? That's it. That's the magic number. Congratulations, Jim. Um, Jim, send me your uh, send me your address information in the same text box you just sent it in, and uh, your your mailing address and email address and so forth, so we can contact you and get you those flies. But great. Well, congratulations, Jim. And uh, congratulations, Jim. And Jim, thanks for offering up those flies. That's uh, great. And uh, folks, you know where to go if you're going up Minnesota way and uh, want to do some fly fishing. Uh, check out Moose Track, and uh, I'm sure they'll be able to help you out. Well, hey Jim, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, it's uh, it's a great pleasure to to interview you and and find out more about the uh, the Boundary Waters. And uh, I'm sure everybody learned a lot. Well, thank you very much, and I uh, really appreciate you having me on the show, and thanks for all the great listeners out there on uh, the best fly fishing radio show out there. Well, thanks, thanks, and you keep warm up there this winter, okay? And we'll do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, our next show will be on March 4th at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, and on that show we'll be interviewing Jim Klug, and our topic for the show will be destination travel, how to get your money's worth. And Jim Klug is guided extensively in Montana, Colorado, New, New Mexico, Oregon, and has fished waters throughout the world, including Bahamas, Belize, Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Costa Rica, Alaska, Canada, U.S. Virgin Islands, British Virgin Islands, Cuba, India, and more. So he's been around. If you want to learn about the best places to go, where you get the most bang for your buck, and how to make do-it-yourself trips successful, you want to listen to this show. We'd like to thank uh, the Federation of Fly Fishers, Fly Fusion Magazine, Royal Gorge Anglers, Women's Fly Fishing Alaska, Paramount Marquette River Lodge for sponsoring our show tonight. If you think your company would benefit from sponsoring one of our shows, give us a call at 1-888-961-1115, extension 2, and we'll be happy to explain the options to you. That's 888-961-1115, extension 2. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Good fishing.